Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Hey. Good evening, everyone. My name is Janelle Riley. I'm so thrilled to welcome you to this SAG After a Foundation conversation with Malcolm McDowell. Um, this is somebody who has been consistently turning out excellent work on film, television, and stage for 50 years, believe it or not, which means he started when he was 10. Uh, his credits, of course, range from A Clockwork Orange to The Artist. He's currently starring in the Golden Globe award-winning series Mozart in the Jungle on Amazon. Please welcome Malcolm McDowell. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Wow, do you ever get tired of that? Uh, <laughs> does one, an actor ever get tired of applause? <laughs> I don't think so. Thank you so much for being here. Congratulations on 50 years in the business. Oh, Christ, you're reminding me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, it doesn't seem that long, of course, but um, 50 years. It's actually more than 50 years because... Um, it's, I think, uh, more or less 54 years. And uh, since I really appeared on a stage when I was an 11-year-old boy at school, um, I was shoved into a, uh, a musical. Thank God I was, because I went to a boarding school in the south of London, uh, in the south of England. I'm from, actually, uh, lived in Liverpool. You might have heard of that. <laughs> they have a very famous football team. <laughs> or as you call it, soccer. Um, <clears throat> and they had a few musicians that, from that part of the world. But um, it's actually a very great city, and I was thrilled, in retrospect, to come from there because they have a great sense of humor in the north of England. Very different from the south. In the south, they're rather superior. Oh. As they often are, aren't they, in the South? But, um, no, I'm not making aspersions about the South of America, actually. But, <clears throat> but there's such a divide between North and South. And I think it happens a lot in most countries mm-hmm. that there is. And certainly in this country, it's very marked. And, of course, was marked by a bloody civil war. Or, as our president said... Well, couldn't they work that out? <laughs> no, Mr. Trump, no. It was a lot more serious than that. But of course, um, anyway, so I went to this um, boarding school where luckily for me, the headmaster was uh, obsessed with theater. Really? Yeah. What was the boarding school? It was called Cannock House College in <clears throat> Orpington in Kent. And it was uh, a minor public school. And I say minor because my mentor as an actor, the man I did my first movie for, which was If, which was about a public school. That's your first movie? Yes. Out of the gate? Yes. Did you think it would all be all downhill from there? 
Um, that's what the director said. <laughs> well, you know right. it's all going to be downhill from here on in. And in a way, he was right. But you because were- you can't beat that, the first feeling of the first movie that you star in, you know. It, um, and especially one that's so great as that. And, you know, Lindsay Anderson was uh, such a great director and, and uh, such a beautiful man. And I had such a um, fantastic relationship with him, which was very, um, I mean, uh, you know, it was very um, emotional uh, and very uh, extraordinary in many ways. Now, I didn't know. I was a young man, you know, in my early 20s. I didn't know that he was a um, closeted homosexual and... um, you know, it was the time in society in England where he, his father was a major general in the army, so there was no way that Lindsay Anderson were talking about. There's no way that he could come out um, because of his family situation, I guess. Mm-hmm. So he was, uh, it was sad. But of course, I didn't know that then. It's only in retrospect reading his diary that really? I found out how lonely he was. So even, it wasn't until after he passed away? No, we had no idea. Oh. I kept saying to this writer, this great friend of mine, we did this movie together, If, Oh Lucky Man, and Britannia Hospital, this trilogy of movies that were you know, the, probably the best work of my career in many ways. Um, and we kept saying, you know, I've never seen Lindsay with, with a, a woman or a man. I mean... Um, he, and David used to say, no, I, I think he's, um, you know, he just does, a, he abstains from everything. And I was like, wow, I've never heard of that, but um, <laughs> extraordinary. He should really be a monk, you know. <clears throat> How did he find you to cast you in If? Because that's a, that's a huge seminal movie, and you were, it was your first movie, like first time in front of the camera even? Yes. Wow. Well, I, I'd done a television or two. But this is the first time in front of a movie camera, you know. Um, it's funny though that I always knew that I would be, a, a, you know, pretty good at movies instead of because I, you know everyone that's an actor in England, you start on the stage, of course, and there's only one place to go, and that's London because everything takes place in London. Mm-hmm. All the theatre, the great theatre is in London and um, also in the provinces, but the West End is special. And also the National Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Royal Court Theatre are all based in London. And then, of course, the movies are all in London and the TVs. So everything is in London. So you better live in London. And um, so that's what happened to me. And I came and and did theatre. I did regional theatre which is basically where I learned how to act because um, I didn't go to a drama school, per se. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Are you grateful for that? I am now. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was then because I felt a little bit inferior to the people that sort of went to RADA <laughs> and had these frightfully good accents, you know. And I thought, fuck that, you know. <laughs> I'm a working class actor, you know. <laughs> but this is the great thing. It, it was the time of the working class actor, I have to say. It was a very exciting time, socially, in, in England. Because of the, you know, the, we'd had the 
the war years that were so hard and all the, uh, I'm not just talking about the war, but I'm talking about the population and, um, you know, rationing for everything. You couldn't get a, I don't think I saw a banana, you know, before the age of 10 or 12 or something. It was like, what's that yellow thing? <laughs> oh, that's what they look like. Um, you know, uh, so, and everything was rationed and the whole thing. So, and, um, you know, I think that the middle class, the aristocracy, the middle class, upper middle class, um, thought that they would carry on from where they left off before the war. But by this time, you know, the working man and the working movement had started to move and, and had started to stand up for their rights. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but the provinces also would, you know, said, hey, you're not the only ones, you know, because London is a very hugely powerful city and still is, you know, and it, it, it amuses me about Brexit, you know, that all the bankers and all the rest of it thought it was all going to be, you know, but they forgot about all the people in the Midlands and the North who said, no, we don't want you European twits, you know, <laughs> excuse me, but we don't. You're just forgetting us mm-hmm. and all the fat cats, you know, who works in, work in the bank and all in the banks of the city of London. <clears throat> you know, and, and um, the working man was forgotten and they said, no, we don't want Europe. We don't want to be in there and we want to control our borders. Anyway, we're not getting into political. Well, I'm that. curious because you mentioned you come from this working class family. Yes. How, well, how did they feel about you wanting to be an actor? They were um, not too keen. <laughs> but they didn't dissuade, they didn't sort of belittle it in any way. Then, of course, I found out that my grandfather was an actor-manager. Really? His name was Beckett. That's really? where your name comes from. There's my son sitting there. So, <clears throat> yes. Um, he was an actor-manager. I've got pictures of him playing Sweeney Todd. Get so had yeah. your family kept this like a dark secret? Well, it or? wasn't a dark secret. It was just they didn't, didn't ever talk about it. Wow. Because I think my father was very um, disappointed in his father hmm. because he was never at home. He was never there. And because he was always, you know, touring. And uh, that's what it was in those days. You know, you toured constantly the provinces and... You know, so the family were left with nannies and all this. So, you know, he, I'm sure he he never really knew his father. And all I remember of him was this man when I was a child, you know, four to five, six, that age, who lived at the top of our house and had a shock of white hair. And I was told that he had one pint of Guinness every day. <laughs> and the Guinness fortified one's liver, apparently. <laughs> well, I think he was 80 odd when he died, so I I'm, I'm tend to believe yeah, it. Yeah, he knew what he but was But as about. I don't like Guinness very much and I don't really <laughs> drink, so... <clears throat> so was it in the theater that Lindsay saw you? No. Uh, are we getting around to the question? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I do tend to go off of... You have to bring me in. I can just talk to <laughs> Yes, I went to an audition. My agent said, There's an audi- I was working at the Royal Court Theatre 
Um, and, and I was thrilled to be working at the Royal Court. It's an avant-garde theatre, one of the best theatres in London. It's where Look Back in Anger started. The revolution in Western theatre. It's where Pinter started and all these great authors. So, And the author is the only person who's on the marquee. You're kidding. No, isn't that great? That's it's fantastic. so great. I know. <clears throat> what is and, this bizarro land? <laughs> well, it's because the right, the playwright is the one. It's his play. So, and we are just there to serve the play. Anyway, this was Shakespeare I was doing. It was a modern dress version of Twelfth Night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that good. I was so thrilled anyway. I was playing the most bar- b- boring part. Shakespeare ever wrote Sebastian, <laughs> and uh, but I didn't care. I didn't you know? It was just so great to be at the Royal Court because I've always wanted to work there. And finally, you know, I'd been at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I hated that. It was like working for the government. <laughs> it's just dreadful. It was impossible to get fired. I tried. <laughs> Absolutely impossible. Anyway, um, that's another story. But um, so I showed up uh, for an audition. It was in a theater. When the theater was dark during the day, they rented out, you know, for auditions. And and then, uh, so I, I didn't know who they were. I just arrived. I had a clue who, what it was, who it was, or anything. And walked on, and, you know, the lights were on. It was... The audience was in the dark, or the audience was three people, I think. <laughs> Casting director, assistant, and the director, who jumped up on the stage and said, oh, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing a modern dress version of Twelfth Night at the Royal Court. He goes, oh, really? Sounds awful. <laughs> I went, well, really? Uh, actually, it's not awful. It's... It's, it's actually, I think, pretty good. He goes, really? Who, who's in it? I told him. He said, oh, yes, yes. Oh, hmm. Who's directing? I told him. He went, really? Mm. <laughs> Pretentious. I went, ah, well, okay. Now the floodgates are open. I've been invited to gossip a bit. Yeah. I went, actually, the truth is, it's the most pretentious piece of crap I think I've ever been in. I mean, we're opening next week. I know where I'm making my entrances, but nobody's told me where to get off. Where do I make my exits? I'm wandering around the state. Anyway, <clears throat> we had a good gossip about the royal court and how awful they were, what pretentious crap it all was. There was a slight pause in the conversation, and he said, of course, you do realize, don't you, Malcolm, that I am a director of the royal court. What? No. I went, oh, really? Um, Well, I suppose I won't be getting this part there, will I? (laughs) And he said, not necessarily. Hmm. And... And that's true to his word, because I, I guess we kind of got on because of the gossip. Yeah. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so then word came back that they were very interested in me in the part, which was the lead, because I'd not read a script, so I haven't got a clue what it was about, except that it was about a school. 
and a bit of a revolution or something, you know, or whatever. <clears throat> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then they kept, you know, uh, for the next two weeks, they kept me hanging around. And everyone, of course, at the theater, we'd open by this time. Great reviews, of course. Oh, really? The more pretentious the piece, the better the reviews. <laughs> and, um, you know, so we're living the... Life of Riley, going to the pub afterwards, hanging, you know, it was great. And so, um, anyway, then I get a call uh, to go back for this final audition. So I'm very excited, and I arrive at another theatre, you know, different one this time, and um, so the director says, Lindsay Anderson said, good, have you got the script? I went, no, no, I haven't got it. He went, what? <laughs> He hasn't got a... Why hasn't he been sent a script? They go, well, I don't know. Has anybody got a script? And then the writer goes, well, you can, you can have mine, you know. <laughs> so I... Oh, what, which scene are we doing? So I'm, and then I notice this beautiful girl. I, I, I'd been under the impression that it was an all-boys school. And I thought, what the hell is this girl? This gorgeous. I mean, really fascinating girl and this just shows you how my mind works I, how concentrated I am as a professional <laughs> that I'm supposed to be studying the scene that we're about to do which is if I get the part going to change my life and what am I thinking oh that girl is gorgeous <laughs> oh my god what if I could take her out <laughs> So um, I'm trying to look at the thing, and it's going in one ear and out the other. Just, uh, oh, hello. Uh, uh, <laughs> we're working together, I think. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, and, right, let's do this. Okay, this is the scene. It's a cafe. You're coming in. She is behind the counter, and there's a lot of sexual tension. Yeah, that won't be difficult. <clears throat> and... Um, so you ask for your coffee, and, and then, and so we're doing this thing, and, you know, she goes, coffee? I go, black. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. And then I, I read the thing, because I haven't read it, and I read, Mick reaches over and kisses the girl passionately. I thought, my God, it's my day today. <laughs> I'm going to be able to do this without being found out because it's part of the scene. So I reached, pulled her, oh, it was a table or something. Our lips, whatever, they banged together, teeth, blood. No, really? Yes. Oh, oh yeah. my God. It was an absolute fucking mess. Oh. But... There was a lot of tension <laughs> from her and from me. I had not read the next instruction in the script, which was, girl slaps Mick viciously. So what happened, I'm not quite sure. The next thing I remember was being on the floor of the stage and blubbing like a baby. Really? I was crying. I like to say my 
My eyes were watering. I was actually sobbing because I found out later she hit me with a punch that came from here. Bang! Wow. Which I did not see. I was not aware of it. Now, in a way, you could say pure acting. Sure. Pure. (laughs) Because I didn't flinch. I didn't do anything. I just took the punch. (laughs) Boom. With the blood and the whole thing. And now the blubbing, the crying, pathetic sort of (laughs) creature that I was. uh, Now I've forgotten that I'm doing an audition. I'm now really pissed. (laughs) I've come to humiliated and pissed. Now I'm stalking that bitch across the stage. (laughs) We are stalking. She's throwing out lines. I don't know what I'm saying because I've got no script now because I went flying. And I'm just stalking her. The electricity is staggering. (laughs) And after a while, the director goes, thank you. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, is that it? And the writer jumps up and going, why don't we just give them the bloody parts now? That was brilliant. (laughs) And of course, Lindsay Anderson says, that is not how you cast a film, David. Shut up. So, um... We know you were cast. Was she cast? She was cast. Okay. <laughs> she was actually uh, so delightful. And, and when we actually came to shoot that scene, now she was Cockney. She was an absolutely beautiful girl. And, um, so we were shooting. We didn't shoot that scene for like, I think, three or four weeks into the movie. And so <clears throat> she'd come on set. I'd, and, you know, we're in school uniform, which is actually like a tails and with, you know, wing collars and all that. And I'd say, Christine, lovely to see you. God, I said, looking forward to our scene. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. <laughs> really, oh, excitement. Um, I'd love to take you out for a coffee or something. No, nah, I don't think so. Well, perhaps we could have dinner or something. No, no. Why would I want to have dinner with you? Well, I, 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 I don't know, really. I know, no, I mean, just to, you know, get together. I mean, no reason, really. I mean, just to be nice, I suppose, and friendly. And nah, I don't think so. No, fair, fair enough. Okay. Well, I won't push it. But maybe we could have a cup of tea on the set or something with fifty other people. That make you feel any better? <laughs> So we get to the actual scene. Now, by this time, I'm rolling. I'm in the part. I know what I'm doing, sort of. <laughs> so, and Lindsay's incredible director, this extraordinary director. And so I sort of go over to Lindsay. Now, this is before there's any nudity in major movies, right? There's, there's none of that. This is, you know... We're used to sort of having drawing room comedies where you sit there with a cup of tea and put your pinky out. So I waltz up to Lindsay and go, wouldn't it be incredible when we're rolling around like animals on the floor, you cut and we're actually naked. 
And he goes, you ask her. (laughs) (laughs) So I sidle over to Christine. I said, Christine, I don't know. Uh, Lindsay's just asked me. (laughs) Whether you would be prepared to do this um, shot uh, naked. She goes, I don't mind. I went, really? Oh, really? Oh, okay. Oh, oh good. (laughs) Yeah, great. So, um, there again, you know, I've hit pay dirt here. Anyway, so, end of the shoot of the day, last shot is this naked shot. um, So, she comes out in a, you know, terrorcraft sort of uh, dressing gown, and um, I'm standing there. And so, Lindsay goes, okay. Get your, get your kit off. And I, well, um, just like this now, here, you mean, I haven't, is there somewhere I could go, you know? No, no, not at all. Just do it. You're going to be doing it naked in front of everybody. What's the big deal? I went, well, the floor's dirty. (laughs) It was a greasy spoon after all. Um, suddenly I thought a little bit, um, vulnerable, you know, because a geezer, you know, has it all, his tackle hanging out. And it was a cold day, as you can imagine. <laughs> so no, no prizes for guessing that one. <laughs> so I sort of, uh, anyway, she just goes, off cut. Uh, mm, uh, uh. So I, I just uh, couldn't possibly be seen to be looking at this gorgeous creature. I knew she was there, but I couldn't look because it was ungentlemanly and really low rent. <laughs> Which is usually my, you know, operation. <laughs> she also might punch you again. Uh, yeah, I was a bit wary of it. Um, <clears throat> so I took my uh, kit off and action! We started rolling around. I don't remember a thing about it. I never saw anything of her. I think I had a boob on my face at one point. <laughs> I don't know. I can't. Honestly, remember ever feeling the warmth of her skin? Nothing. It was unbelievable. It was like it all went by in a dream, and I had to see the bloody film to see what kind of gorgeous figure she had. Because I didn't see it. I I, I just did not see it at all. So that's how stupid that thing backfired on me. You said <laughs> you said you knew that this movie would probably change your life. I mean, did it? Yes. It changed your career for sure. Changed my life. Actually, this the first one was way more than the, you know, huge hit that came uh, a year or two later, which was Clockwork Orange. And yeah. Which didn't Kubrick see if and yes, that's why he, he cast saw you? if and cast me. That was it. No audition? No. Wow, that's amazing. Is it? A li- well, for Kubrick... You see, I don't honestly think it is, because I really resent the dumbness of these auditions that they do on tape and all this. Come on. I mean, please. Are you professional or not? I mean, a director of Worth His Salt doesn't need to see an actor on tape. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, I, I, to me... I mean, Kubrick would never be like that. Neither would Lindsay. You know, they would meet you, talk to you. And maybe you'd read a bit of a scene or something. 
or not, but not even that, you know. It's very, the casting process is so intuitive and so crucial to a movie. In a play, you can sort of get away with it, sort of, if you're miscast. <laughs> you know, you can camp because, you, you know, but in a film you can't because it's here, it's the soul. It's the eyes, it's everything. And if you're miscast in a film, it's over. Mm-hmm. It's over because you can't, it's too expensive. You know, you can't recast and all that. So, I mean, uh, you know, Cube, I got a call. Um, not from my agent. I think it was from actually Kubrick's assistant. Really? Yes, to go, would I go and meet with him? I was doing a movie in uh, Elstree, which is where he lived, funnily enough. And so we arranged for me to go in my lunch hour to meet Stanley. Now, because I was young, naive, and really stupid, I thought I was meeting Stanley Kramer. (laughs) (laughs) Which also would have been impressive, but... Impressive, but not Stanley Kubrick. (laughs) But I wasn't sure. So, uh, and you know, I was trying to learn lines and trying to do a scene and doing... So I go and I meet this guy and we were meeting in a very well everything in his house was covered in turkish towels there were um i guess they were all um you know stuff that he didn't want anybody to see (laughs) and pictures of um locations and this and that and so um he took me through into a small little room we just small talk for 45 minutes and in the end, I went, oh, well, Stanley, um, I've got to get back on set. Is, is, was there anything you wanted to see me about? I mean, it's just nice, wonderful to meet you, of course. And now here's the man who had done Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, 2001, and then this unnamed project, which was his biggest hit of all. And I start in it. <laughs> yeah. There's so much legend built around Stanley Kubrick, not yeah. just because he's so immensely talented, but you hear about, you know, him making actors do dozens upon dozens of takes. You hear about, you know, very private sets. What was your experience like with him? I had a wonderful time with him. You know, he was, a, of course, extraordinarily intelligent and had a great intellect. He was a sort of um, prodigy, you know. Uh, But very quiet man. Uh, Short, a little overweight perhaps, and uh, had very black, dark eyes. And uh, he was, I think, 47 when I worked with him. So he was at the peak of his powers. And What I learned was that after 2001 had had huge cost overruns, I mean, it's it's peanuts today. Christ almighty, it's the probably the budget of the craft service today. (laughs) (laughs) But he, he, um, it had brought down the, um, you know, the the chairman and board of MGM because of the cost overruns. Yeah. So he was determined to make a small budget, manageable film. So 
So I got him probably at the best time because I never did lots of takes and you know, I usually, I, I usually, the first time, I usually got it. And then I go, why are we doing another one? He go, well, it was safety. I went, well, why don't you change the, change the cam then? You know, if you're going to be safety, then why don't you change the, the whole thing? He go, well, I'd just like to see another one. I, 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 I was precocious, I know, pain in the ass. But um, <laughs> you sort of had to be with Stanley because you had to kind of stand your ground. Because he was a killer. He was a killer. And he ate actors for breakfast. (laughs) But not you? He tried. (laughs) But he never ate me. (laughs) And I never worked with him again. That's right. That's kind of odd, actually. Not really. Actually, he didn't work with a lot of the same people. He worked with... The one that he loved the most was Peter Sellers. Yeah. Because Peter Sellers would go in and do 50 different takes and he'd choose one. And that, and Stanley really wasn't into, you know, the actual, the way that the drama unfolded, the actual staging of something, which, um, because I was from theater and stuff, I would try to explain to him, look, this is a little crescendo in the scene. Then we, you know, pause and we let, People take a breath, and then we come to the end, and I'm going to bang at the end. And he'd look at me like I was nuts, you know. He said, just get on with it, or whatever. <laughs> great direction. Yeah, I, well, no, the greatest direction ever was, right at the beginning of the movie, I said, Stanley, um, do you have any thoughts? And I, I, this is the way I'd speak with Lindsay Anderson. I'd say to Lindsay Anderson, any thoughts? And then for the next hour... He'd give me all the thoughts. And there'd be so many damn thoughts, you wouldn't know what the hell to do. Anyway, that's another story. But so with Stanley, I went, any thoughts on this scene? And he looked at me like I was a sort of turd or something. And he went, that's why I hired you. And walked off. I went, oh, really nice. I went, oh, here's a, here's a call sheet, Stanley. He goes, S. Kubrick, director. <laughs> I've had a bit of direction. That'd be nice. Because <clears throat> he laughed. He just laughed. <laughs> and then I realized what an amazing gift that mm-hmm. he'd given me. He gave me something that um, I would never get from Lindsay, you know, who was such a great, director and all the rest of it but he gave me something which was get out on a limb and just go for it Mm -hmm. show me show me so every day that's what happened and it was a crazy ride i mean it was so controversial at the time but did you sort of know what you were getting into no really it caught you off guard well, I thought it was, you know, a comedy. <laughs> well, it is a comedy. A black comedy. And I, and I was stunned that nobody laughed. I went, God almighty, these Americans have no sense of humor. <laughs> when I saw the film in, um, on, on uh, 3rd Avenue, Cinema 1, and, and the place was jammed, you know, and it was dead silent. I'm going, oh my God, 
They hate it. They must hate it. And then I went out and I said, Jesus, I'm in the foyer. And a woman came out and went, and bathed everywhere. (laughs) Wow. And as I'm in every frame, I get it, okay? I get it. I get it. And uh, so there was no, nobody laughed. It was too, it was, it was just too, I guess, uh, you know, close to where we were at socially. Because, you know, the drugs, the gangs, of course, it's a joke, but it was all happening then. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it's, it became much more prevalent and in focus as time went on. And, but the great thing about this film and this, actually the book, and, and you know, people don't really mention the book, but the book is a work of absolute genius, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it, it's an incredible piece of writing. And, you know, the book was my Bible. I went around with that book and I'd say to Stanley, hey, Stan, no, 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 no. This is, have you heard what Burgess, this is what Burgess said. Can I read it? And, and he'd go, and I'd read it to him and he'd go, oh, oh, okay, well, uh, okay. And, and then we, you know, he'd, uh, so we, I, I was worked very closely to the book and it, it's a political situation. I think that's why the film is so relevant today. It's not because of the drugs and the violence and all that bullshit. It's about the freedom of man to choose. Whatever path he chooses, he should have the freedom. And if it's this way or that way, at least he has the freedom to choose. And uh, that's what it's really about. It's very simple, really. But, um, of course, it's... Um, made extraordinary by, you know, Beethoven and these, this guy, you know, this, these, this gang and this language. It's extraordinary language that Burgess came up with, which is Yiddish and Russian. And, really? Yeah. When was the last time you watched it? Oh, God, I don't know. A long time ago, I think. Because <laughs> it's still, I mean, like the Simpsons parodies it like every week, I feel like. Yeah. There's always a, like the very first um, Halloween episode, Bart went as Alex. I know. You, yeah, I strange? never got a check for that. <laughs> Maybe it's in the mail. <laughs> I was just like, this is a kid's show, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, but, you know, kids do go dressed as Alex at Halloween when they could never have seen the movie. <laughs> They're this big. Have you ever opened the door and, and seen one? No, but, um, <laughs> you know, I did this Halloween film, uh, Rob Zombie, of course. later on. and. You know, I played uh, Loomis, Dr. Loomis, who is this doctor who's, you know, one case is this Michael Myers, you know, and, and how good of a doctor can he be? Right. <laughs> 17 years he's been treating one patient. The guy escapes and kills the whole town. <laughs> I ask you, how good of a doctor is he? <laughs> um, so we're trick-or-treating and um, we went past this big window that was illuminated and there was Michael Myers with the mask, the whole thing. And I rapped on the window and I went, get back to the hall, get back to your bed. And he went, oh, oh. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. It was hilarious. You remember that? That's great. 
I know I was bothering you earlier about time after time. Um, oh, I love that film. Which yeah. I, I is this true? It was your first Hollywood movie? Well, it was the first movie I'm ever made in America. I, in, yes, in, yes. So it took you like ten years to make an American movie? Because I, I think so. it was seventy nine. I mean, yeah, you know the ones that I'd been offered before that. I just they weren't very good, you know. I mean, I just I was uh, enjoying myself in Europe, you know, playing um, more substantial parts, mm-hmm. if you can call Caligula substantial. <laughs> Are you allowed to talk about that? Yeah. I'm allowed to talk about anything. <laughs> so, uh, what's the, what's the one Caligula story that uh, we probably haven't heard at this point? How filthy can I be? <laughs> well, there's so many stories. Um, and I did think I would do it as a one-man show, but I didn't come out with a toga on and you know, over my jeans, you know. <laughs> but um, I did work with um, some great actors. Yeah, it's got an amazing cast. Amazing. Peter O'Toole, who I adored. And my favorite of all was, was John Gielgud, Sir John. And Helen Mirren, Dame Helen. Oh, she wasn't a dame then. In fact, if the Queen had seen this film, I doubt whether she would have been a dame. <laughs> but, um, well, there was, a, uh, there was a particular sequence that we were doing, which um, was shot on a three-acre site outside of Rome somewhere. And, you know, they built this whole thing, and, and, and it was supposed to be Tiberius's, um, his plaything his his playland on the isle of capri and it's of course completely debauched there's you know they've got dwarfs if i'm allowed to use that term i never know anymore small people anyway <laughs> swinging and fucking on trapezes i kid you not this is i kid you not if you can't bear the language please leave now but <laughs> I mean, the set was just Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. It was swinging penises, <laughs> 15 feet long, and <laughs> there were hundreds of casts, basically naked, jumping up and down. God knows what was going on. Now, this was shot at three or four o'clock in the morning. Oh, God. We were waiting, Peter O'Toole and myself were waiting to be called on the set. Now, we'd not been to the set. So we're in his trailer where the producer had asked me to go through his lines with him. <laughs> well, um, Peter was into marijuana at that time and was smoking uh, non-stop marijuana doobies, <laughs> cigarettes, in a cigarette holder. So, of course, <laughs> looking frightfully sophisticated. <laughs> and so we'd go through uh, the dialogue and um, it would get longer and more slurred as we went on. And then we'd do it Cockney or because we just, you know, let's do it Scottish now, shall we? And we do it Scottish. And it was as we were having so much fun, we were in tears laughing. And listen, I was not smoking because I was terrified because I had a lot of lines. Um, but, but on the contact high alone, God, I had to keep going on. <laughs> 
back again. I thought, when are they cold? You know, we were cold at four o'clock in the afternoon. Now it's three in the morning, 3.30, we start to go, and you know, and it's now cold and we're walking to the set and I'm walking behind Peter who is literally his legs are this thick. Mm. Little, like a little bird, you know. And he, he's wearing a diaper <laughs> and a kind of chiffon thing that has one stitch here and one stitch there. And that's it. So everything is flapping. You know. <laughs> he is so completely off the planet Earth <laughs> that he doesn't give a fuck, you know, where he is. I am behind him. <laughs> and we go to the set and look around for the first time going... <laughs> he starts off, they're going, we're losing light. Oh, yeah. Peter, losing light, darling. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Rome was but a... Jesus, darling. <laughs> God almighty. <laughs> I think they're deformed. <laughs> deformed. <laughs> Swinging on a trapeze. Darling, what are they doing? I mean... I think they're, we're rolling, we're rolling. Oh, Rome was but a sick. Oh my God. Oh my God. I've never seen a dildo like that in my life. Well, how we ever got. So we come, it's in the bloody film, the scene. Don't, I'm not exaggerating at all. In fact, I'm playing it down. For good taste. <laughs> he comes to a, a sentry standing there and he says, Caligula, do you think this man is drunk? I say, Yes, my lord, I think this man's drunk. He goes, More wine! And they shove a funnel down the poor guy's mouth and start pouring wineskins you know, wine down down the poor man's throat while we go off on a little merry little tour <laughs> of all this stuff that's going on <laughs> and we come back uh, to, the, to this man who is now of course got uh, and um, Caligula do you think this man is drunk. Yes, my lord, I think this man is drunk. Knife! Now, he's... <laughs> I've got to put that sword into that man's hand and make it look like it's just real. And But I don't know where the hand is going to be. <laughs> Whom! He walks up to the guy. Now they have... They, uh, the soldier has a breastplate and under the breastplate the props have got like this sort of, I don't know what it is, like a beach ball. And they filled it with chicken gizzards and red wine. And the idea is he's going to pop it and the guts fall out of the guy. And so now we're now way past four in the morning. <laughs> 300 extras who don't speak English and want to get home. He goes up to the guy with the sword, puts it, and he goes like this. The breastplate goes whoop, 
up and this thing of gizzards and wine goes boom, boom. We look in astonishment. And O'Toole looks at me and he goes, I think she dropped her fucking handbag. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting because I noticed that that came out the same year as Time After Time. Did you shoot those back to back? Because those have got to be two very different experiences. How extraordinary. Yes. Talk about a schizophrenic life. Which came first? uh, Caligula. I read Time After Time when I was in Rome. And I thought, oh, God, yes. And he didn't even want me to play Jack the Ripper. That's right. You got to be H.G. Wells. Oh, great. So, of course, I went, yes. Because I was dying to get out of this whole, you know, I spent a year on this movie, on um, Caligula. Really? And, you know, it was a Gore Vidal project. I got into it through, through Gore. And um, who's a, you know, was a wonderful writer, of course, and, and a man of letters, you know, and he called me and said, Malcolm, I have the part for you. I want you to play Gore Vidal's Caligula. <laughs> Gore Vidal's Caligula. The ego. Yeah. But, hey, yeah, ooh, I'm in. Yeah, absolutely. Gore Vidal's Caligula. Yeah, okay. Um, read the script. I thought it really needed a rewrite, but, you know, a little at a time. And I said, well, Gore, this is our first meeting. Who, who is banking it? Who's the studio? Mm-hmm. He went, uh, Bob Guccione. I went, Bob Guccione? The pornographer? He goes, just think of him as one of the Warner Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so began an adventure which um, w- was so really was, was really so extraordinary that um, one of these days I'll have to either write it down or play it uh, for, for all it's worth because so many funny stories really it was ridiculous Guccione coming on the set like he's the bloody emperor you know I mean, I said you should have been playing this part, Bob. <laughs> really? Really? Have that deep voice. Yeah, you should be playing the part. I mean, he didn't get any of the irony at all. Yeah. And then, he, you know, there's this huge boat that they built for $300,000. In those days, that's millions of dollars. You know, with all gold leaf and, you know, you push one thing and 300 oars go like this or whatever. It was just absolutely amazing. And, and he came to see it this Beautiful set, you know, uh, that had been designed by Danilo, Danilo Donati, who had been Fellini's designer. And um, an amazing piece of work, beautiful. And um, Bob was like, wow, really impressed. And I said, you know, it probably, it probably is seaworthy. You, you could probably sail back to New York in that. <laughs> <laughs> No sense of humor at all. <laughs> wasted, wasted. <clears throat> anyway, um, Danilo Donati had built it, I mean, to within two inches of the whole soundstage. So that, of course, there was nowhere 
to put the camera. <laughs> and it was a big Taguccioni. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I was in the limousine going into town to the hotel after, after he'd seen this, and he'd been told that there was nowhere to put the camera. You know, you, how am I going to shoot this? I mean, I've got no shot of the boat. You know, I, I can do pieces of it, but I can't get a real shot of it. And so I'm sitting there, and I go, well, you're going to have to do a model shot. And he was like, a model shot, $300,000. I went, well, it's either that or in pieces, yeah. And that's what they did, I think, yeah. So it was probably refreshing to go from that to time after time. I so loved it, yeah. It was wonderful. And um, it was a great experience. Um, you know, I did, uh, I did that, and... Um, it's one of my favorite memories of shooting a movie and of course resulted in two wonderful children that's right charlie mcdowell who's a director just did the discovery and it's a brilliant movie and it's on netflix and you should check it out you love it it's so good i love both his movies though yes uh, the 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 one i love right it was the first one and he's wonderfully talented director so thrilled and and my daughter lily who's um you know, a mom and got three, two and a half. Wonderful girls. Another one is coming. <laughs> How did you feel when Charlie told you he wanted to go into this business? Because it's, it's a rough business. I was, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, listen, I can only say great. You've got to do whatever makes you happy. Mm-hmm. And you know how difficult it is. You've been around your mother and your father and your stepfather long enough to know what it's about. And... Um, you know, it's it's a hard road. Whatever, wherever you're at, you know, in the ladder, you know, it's a hard road. And but if you love something, you love it. What the hell do you do? You know, that's what I said. Look, my father said, "I'll give you five years." I went, "Don't." It could be fifty. I don't know. I mean, uh, there's no five years. There's no limit on. You know, the, it's one phone call away. One phone call. So that's why I always say when young actors, you know, if I talk to them about it, the first thing is, do you really want to do it? Let me tell you the facts. How many, you know, are going to be out of work? How many earn less than 10? And, you know, you can say whatever. But the thing is, if they've got the bug and they really want to do it, then nothing will stop them. And nothing that I'll say or anyone else, thank God, will stop them and they will do it like I did it. I could care less what anybody said to me. I knew what I wanted to do and I went after it, you know, went after it down a few weird turns and stuff. But I ended up at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which was really (laughs) a real dead end for me. But yeah, that was a wild one. But, But listen, if you... It taught me how to gamble, how to drink, but mostly how to gamble. <laughs> we had an actor, an Irish actor uh, called Godfrey Quigley, who That's actually... a great name. He, well, he's a wonderful actor. And he, uh, he, um, he appeared in Clockwork Orange uh, all those years later as the, um, the priest, uh, the you know, uh, fire and brimstone uh, priest in the prison. Anyway, Godfrey, um, he'd invented this game 
where you turn a handle and the thing would jump like this and you had like six horses on the thing and, you know, and we would literally, we'd gamble away, you know, our salaries for the week and the months. And I think I was three months in the hole on this stupid game <laughs> because it went on all night and, you know, it, it was a weird way of living then. You, you didn't get to bed till dawn. And then you'd get up and you'd go to the theater at four in the afternoon, get some eggs on the way and, you know, start all over again. You know, moving furniture, basically, mm-hmm. which is what my job was, you know, take this table to here uh, and, you know, and all this and play a small part and come on and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Letters, my lord, one from Hamlet. Really? 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 Ah. My lord. <laughs> I was good at that. Very good. Well, you, you kind of carved out a niche for yourself. You, you mentioned before, uh, you know, you were, you were pleased you weren't asked to play Jack the Ripper in time after time. Yes. You started playing a lot of really memorable villains. I mean, for, literally from everything from the Big Bad Wolf to the man who killed Captain Kirk in Star yeah. Trek. <laughs> yes, well, you know, a lot of the um, Trekkies, of course, not very keen on me for doing that. <laughs> All I will say is somebody had to do it. <laughs> um, and I mean, that kind of leads to Mozart in the Jungle to some extent, although I have very sort of sympathetic feelings for Thomas um, because, you know, when, yes. when you're a mi- mi- maestro yes. and have been brown-nosed your entire life, what else are you going to behave like? Oh, like a child, you know, like an emotional dwarf. But, you know... But he's the most delicious character, you know. I don't know whether anyone's been watching it, but... <laughs> I, you know, um, to me, it's, it's one of the most fun things I've ever done. Uh, it really is. I, I have so much pleasure playing this character with this group of people. And, you know, from... They're all wonderful. They're um, basically, they're film, you know, writers, directors. There's Paul Weiss... Roman Coppola and uh, Jason Schwartzman and Will Graham, who's come in as a wonderful writer. And, you know, they're fantastic. And they, um, they get the, you know, the timber of the voice. They, they know it now. And, you know, and, and then we've got the leader of our group is um, Gael Garcia Bernal, who's a brilliant actor. I mean, honestly, if I'd met him... You know, in England, and being told he was one of our great actors or something, I would totally believe it because he is. He's as good as they get. And, you know, you can always tell, and, you know, there's a few very special ones that I've worked with on the way. And, um, you know, he is certainly one of those. But I love this show. So uh, I'm thrilled that we're going into our fourth season. Wow. I know, it's great. And we shoot it in New York. And this year, last year we went to uh, Venice. That's right. And this year we're going to Japan, I hear. Really? Well, I hear. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't read the scripts yet. But. So, um, yes. And what was it like getting to do love scenes with Bernadette Peters last season? God, she's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Bernadette Peters, how lucky can I get? From Christine Noonan to Bernadette Peters. Not bad. Well, Bernadette is a tr- 
treasure, you know, really. Uh, she's an American treasure, I think, and, you know, great Broadway star and, and stuff. But she's a very good actress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you tend to forget that, um, you know, because she's got a beautiful voice and can do those musicals, you know, the Sondheim, which are very difficult. I mean, they're of a piece. You have to know what you're doing. And um, so uh, to work with her on this, is, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun working with her, yeah. So I think we've got quite a, a ways to go. Um, I don't think it's all going to be plain sailing. <laughs> Knowing the way Thomas likes to shoot himself in the foot. If it's all going well, pew, ah, yes, that's it. But when you look at a character like that, you know, yeah. they always say that villains don't think of themselves as villains. And I don't know that Thomas is a villain. He's a, he's a difficult... No, he's not, he's not a he's villain. He's a difficult individual. He's an adorable teddy bear. <laughs> but, I mean, you have to have... You have to know somebody like that or, or recognize some of his qualities in... Oh, it's terrible. I don't work like that. <laughs> no. No, I don't. I really don't work like that. It's funny... Um, I'm not in any shape or form a method actor. I, 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 it would, I wouldn't know what to do with it, you know. Um, I, I tried when I was cast in time after time. I thought I'd better do some research. I'm playing, after all, a very famous historical character, H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells to the English is like Ray Bradbury to the Americans or Jules Verne to the French. So I thought, I better do some serious um, research into this. So I called a friend of mine at the BBC and said, would you check the archives and see if there's any recordings of H.G. Wells? Well, he sent me these records that they had from H.G. Wells, a radio interview he did in 1928. So I thought, oh, brilliant. I'm going to be able to do the voice and the whole thing, I'm so happy. And, and I, I put the record on, and um, it was a bit scratched. Mm. But this very high-pitched, <laughs> southeast London voice came through, and I thought, no. no. <laughs> I, I don't think Hollywood is really ready for that. (laughs) Because he sounds like such a twit. (laughs) So, boom. And who knows what the hell. Actually, I can't really criticise in England. Really? For your performance? Well, they're saying, you know, that if that's H.G. Wells, then, you know, uh, then my aunt is my mother or whatever. (laughs) Uh, you know the English, they like to have a go at their own. Uh, well, fair enough, you know. But um, no, he was a figment of one's mm-hmm. imagination. So you don't know. And so is Thomas. Uh, Thomas is, I mean, look, I'm given beautiful things to say, but the writers just follow me around, I think. I know Jason Schwarzman used to get thing, recordings I've done on the internet or something. Really? YouTube. And he goes, I know what you said that. And I went, what? I don't remember saying that. I mean, yeah, it was, it was uh, bizarre. But, you know, listen, uh, however way it works, I, I, what do I care? So you don't know people like him? <laughs> you know, I did know a very famous conductor who was a great friend of my sister and my brother-in-law. 
and his name was Sir George Schulte. He was a total, I better not say this because I know it'll get out. He was a very difficult man. Put it that way. With a huge ego. And it's a bit like Thomas, a little bit, yeah. but, but Thomas has a vulnerability to mm-hmm. it. So in the end, you want to slap him with a wet fish, but you want to hug him too. Yeah. And that's, that's what I try to create uh, for this character. You know, the, the more outrageous and ridiculous and childlike, you know, he's the kind that throws out the toys from the pram. <laughs> and that's the image I have of him. And, and yet there is a vulnerability about him, which is, which is his saving grace that you just go, oh, well, I see. Yeah. Okay. Well, can't be all that bad. <laughs> After 50 or 54 years in the business, I mean, are you still learning new things about acting? Oh my God. Yeah. You never stop learning. The great thing is, <clears throat> you know, I used to have this sort of technique down, which I kind of learned from Lindsay, which was, you know, I, all, acting to me is, is really interesting only in so much that it's a wonderful way to do something in a very stylized way. So, but to make people believe it anyway. So that's always been a kind of, road that I've always tried to go down was I'm not interested in naturalism. Uh, I want to make it real, but not necessarily realistic. Hmm. So if I can find a way um, to stylize it, I mean, Clockwork Orange, I suppose, is a very good example of that because, you know, who would have thought you could get away with a rape and a beating, singing, singing in the rain. But it kind of really makes the movie because it's so stylized that, uh, that it's actually bloody funny. Yeah. I mean, but it's terrible action. You know, the, the man is a hoodlum. He's a, he doesn't have a conscience. And yet, you like him. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, at the time, that caused a bit of a dilemma, mm-hmm. um, especially with the editorials of the more superior newspapers that thought that it was fascist. Mm, seriously. Anyway, it was a laugh at the time. Oh, I'm another fascist. I see. <laughs> Yeah. I actually have some questions from the audience, and forgive me if I mispronounce anyone's name. Um, is it Carolina? Carolina. Carolina, okay. Uh, wants to know, could you name your favorite role and why? My favorite role, I always say this, it's the next one. <laughs> I never look back. I really don't. Uh, there's something out there you know, in the future that's going to be really challenging and a lot of fun. And that's going to be my favorite role. But right now, I guess it's Thomas Pembridge and, you know, Mozart in the Jungle because we've got another season to go and I want to uh, change it subtly, do something different. I really don't want to bore myself. 
So I'm going to do something. It's like, you know, Rob asking me to do Halloween 59, whatever it was, <laughs> but two for him. And I went, I don't want to play the same part. He goes, well, I know. I said, can I make him a real shit this time? He goes, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> because it's just different and it's just more fun to um, change it up and make it work. You know, make, make it, don't make it hokey, but make it actually organic to the material. Make it really work with the material you have. Anyway, I hope that answered Carolina's question. It's interesting because I was thinking of all the amazing directors. You, you mentioned Rob Zombie, yeah. um, who actually is a genius. I've talked to him. That guy has a, a crazy, crazy mind that yeah, is, is, is kind of brilliant. Um, yeah. But you've worked with Robert Altman. Yeah. You've worked with Kubrick. My, one of my favorites. I mean, you're, you're father to a great director. What, what makes yeah. a great director for you? Oh, um, they're all so different. You know, I did love Blake Edwards, too. Well, Bob... Bob Altman, uh, you know, I love Bob Altman. Some of his films, God knows, but the good ones are so good. I mean, and Bob loved actors. You know, that's a rarity, a director that loves actors. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true, actually. A lot of uh, directors are intimidated by actors or... Which is crazy, because we need the directors to tell us. You know, even if it's crap, tell me something, and I'll make something happen. But um, Bob Altman I love uh, dearly, but I, I, my, the favorite one is Lindsay Anderson, has to be, because he started this whole journey off for me. So, um, and I, de- I really loved him dearly, so... Uh, and I was great friends with him till the day he died, 28 or 29 years later. And so he was great. Of course, Kubrick, you know, I mean, so lucky to work with him. Um, I think the best comedy director was Blake Edwards. I had so much fun with Blake. What a great director he was. I really think he was, he's very undervalued. I think he was one of the great comedy directors of all time. And, you know, he was always bummed out by um, Woody Allen. No. <laughs> Isn't it funny? I know. Yeah. It's so weird. I mean, well, Blake, you know, you're pretty good. Yeah, but they all want Woody Allen. You know. <laughs> but he was fantastic and, and real fun on the set. And I'll tell you um, a quick story. Is that I learned how to do this cartwheel for a stage play. Uh, that we did, uh, directed by Lindsay, at the Old Vic. It was Holiday. Um, they redid it. It was actually a, the old play that they made the movie with, uh, you know, Catherine Hepburn and, and um, Cary Grant. Cary Grant. Yeah, yeah. Cary Grant. Uh, anyway, um, so um, I, um, because I was 10 years too old for the part, really, I should never have been cast in that part, but... Um, Lindsay said, come on, look at this incredible townhouse in Park Lane. And God, you just get this feeling and just do a cartwheel. I went, a cartwheel? He goes, can you do a cartwheel? (laughs) I said, Christ, of course I can. 
<laughs> Somebody can teach me how to do it. How difficult can it be? I mean, morons do it, don't they, in the circle? <laughs> of course I can do it. So I learned how to do this damn... But now the Ulvik stage has a rake like this. Every time... And it was supposed to be youthful, you know, 10 years, I'm too old for the part. I did the cartwheel and because of the rake of the stage, boom, the back's out. Oh, oh. So all that youthful exuberance. Ah, oh, geez. Every day I had to go to see the chiropractor to put it back. Whatever it was that came out. <laughs> Usually the hip or something. Anyway, <clears throat> I go from that play to work with Blake. And, he, uh, and I'm telling him, this, I learned this damn cartwheel and only like a few hundred people saw it. Like, and I learned the damn. He goes, well, hey, why don't we do it in this scene? I went, oh, wow. Yeah. What, what about? He said, listen, you're coming. I had a scene with the wife and I was a mean, you know, bastard again. Not that mean. Yeah, mean. I was, it was sort of vaguely based on Charlie Chaplin. Silent vaudevillian, who is now the head of the studio. And so, um, and, and so he was really mean to his wife, played by a wonderful British actress called Patricia Hodge. Anyway, I had to come in, go up to her and do the scene and be real grouchy and threaten her. And then, anyway, so he says, when you come in, you've got a coat, you hold the coat like this. As you come in, you just let go of the coat, walk over to her, do the scene, get right in her face, say you do this. And on your way out, you do the cartwheel and you pick up the coat. I went, oh, that is going to make me look like a million dollars. I'm going to do it. This is going to be great. So, okay. Okay. Silencio, quiet. Here we go. Action. Now, I went into the cartwheel and... To be honest with you, I didn't know where I was because the gyroscopes were all flying around <laughs> and I came up like this against the door. <laughs> Cut. Um, I said, I'm sorry, I don't quite know. Oh, I was, uh, was picking up the coat and, you know, and then I ended up over here instead of over here. I'm, too, I'm so sorry. Let's try that again. This time, boom, ended up over here this time. Well, it took me, I don't know how many damn takes of doing this bloody cartwheel. But in the end, of course, I got it. Then, thank God, they got a great stuntman who did all these twirls and ding and bing and and all this stuff. And it made me look like uh, I could really knew what I was doing when, of course, I didn't at all. <laughs> so he did use the cartwheel in the film because I would have been really mad if no, he had no, it. No, it's in the film. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the film is called Sunsets. It's mm-hmm. not one of, you know, not one of his best, but I don't care. I loved it. And I got to work with James Garner. Yeah. James Garner, to me, was one of our great, great actors. And so understated and so brilliant. Now, all my favorite actors were American actors. Really? Yep. Growing up, my favorite was Jimmy Cagney. Mm. 
Jimmy Cagney was the greatest actor that ever was on celluloid, I believe. I love that man. And, and even when he's with all the rest of the gang, you know, um, Humphrey Bogart and Sidney Greenstreet, whatever, you only look at Jimmy Cagney. Maybe it's just me, but I was just so in love with him and his energy and his just the delivery, the, you know, yeah. great. Um, of course, you know, then you've got, of course, the theater actors, you know, worked with Laurence Olivier and, uh, of course, John Gilgood and a wonderful actor, Ralph Richardson, who was a brilliant, brilliant actor, you know. These were all great actors. Um, Olivier, I worked with on a Pinter piece, a piece that um, is called The Collection. It's actually on YouTube. It's Harold Pinter play. And we did it for television. And it was, the idea was, Olivier was the producer of this, as well as acting in some of them. And it was the best play of, and they gave the year. Mm. And this was the best play of 1963. Of course, it wasn't the best play of 1963 at all, but, you know, neither here nor there. Um, <clears throat> and, um, Alan Bates was in it, who, who I adored and he, one of my favorite actors. So Olivier and I played, um, lovers. Um, deeply in the closet, as it were. And on the first read-through, uh, we're all gathered, the whole group, like, I don't know, 100 people uh, from Granada Television, and Olivier, of course, all the cast, and Harold Pinter. And Olivier, right from the read-through, played it like he was swinging a handbag in high heels. Really? <laughs> Which completely killed the play. Stone dead. <laughs> Bang. If you know that they are, you know, uh, so um, there's nowhere to go. That's really it. I mean, so I'm, I'm looking at Alan Bates and I were like, oh, my God, sir, what is he doing? And we were kind of laughing together. Then we looked out and saw Harold Pinter, who had smoke coming out of his ears. <laughs> And the young director was Michael Apted, who went on to do Coal Miner's Daughter. So, but this was early days. And um, so we'd say to Michael Apted, have you told Sir yet? I'm about, I will tell him. I will, I will. So we did like four days rehearsals. He was like, woo, camping it up. Like, a, you know, he's like a row of tents, you know. So Alan and I were just like, absolutely gobsmacked by this because it was just extraordinary to see it really but anyway the day came when the director Michael Apted was to tell Sir the greatest living actor that he was barking up the wrong tree <laughs> so all we there were like this we were in a rehearsal room in South London and there were the, these doors like at a restaurant doors like this and, and we were kind of looking through these doors and all we could see was the back of Larry's and, and his ears and the back of his head and we could see Michael couldn't hear him whispering in his ear and, and suddenly we hear, but of course, dear boy, I always start big and bring it in. <laughs> God bless him, you know. Yeah. 
What a brave, brave actor. Mm -hmm. What a brave man. I mean, no wonder this man did these performances to die for. God, I saw him play Othello. Oh, wow. And he completely blacked up because be completely um, not political today. But he moved like this Moorish guy. Just absolutely staggering performance. I mean, he was wonderful. And, um, you know, he was, a, he was a great hero to us in a way. He, uh, he was really amazing. But of course, in this thing, you know, it, yeah. it was, uh, it was a lot of fun working with him because we actually all went to the pub to get, to have lunch. And there's, you know, it was London spring day. We're in Macintosh, flat hat, you know. And we go into the little snug bar around the corner from the rehearsal thing, South London. And there's just the three of us there with, you know, pork pie and a shandy or something. And Olivier, Alan Bates, and myself. And we're there, and suddenly the door opens, and a cockney lorry driver or whatever comes in, he, and he orders, a, um, I'll have a pint, mate, a pint. And he goes... Hang on! Oh, come on! <laughs> Fucking hell! Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's the old clockwork banana, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah! Oh, come on! No! Oh, you come in for a quiet pint, and then you're looking at this ruffian here! Unbelievable! Here, sign this. Got some. Here, a beer mat. Sign a beer mat. Yeah, great. And then he. And you go, wait a minute, it's Tom Jones, isn't it? <laughs> Tom Jones! I went, oh, fuck. And Alan is like, of course, that was Albert Finney, wasn't it? Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, uh, sign it. Uh, and then, so the, the guy's signing, and, and I went, um, I look round, and Larry is sitting there. Oh, <laughs> oh God. And I said, excuse me, uh, surely you want the autograph of the finest living actor, Laurence Olivier. He goes, what? Ooh, what, this old geezer? (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God. Alan grabs hold of me as we're leaving. He goes, we're going to pay for that. I went, what? He goes, oh, and sure enough, (laughs) he was in a terrible mood all afternoon. (laughs) But what a great actor. What a great actor. You ask Hopkins about him. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. I mean, just what he could do and transport you. And uh, see, he really was of the old school, I guess, so... That's why I think film wasn't particularly kind, although he did some, yeah, some great wonderful movies. performances, especially his Shakespeare performances. Um, his Richard III, I think, is one of the great performances I've ever seen on celluloid. And in fact, that's the one performance I had in my mind when I was doing clockwork. Really? Mm. Yes, because it's the only other sort of anti-hero who's a sort of murderer, mm-hmm. who 
is the sort of romantic lead, in a way, of the film. And this was the first one. I, I suppose I was the, the next uh, in a contemporary sense, which led to Tony Hopkins um, and Silence of the Lambs yeah. and all that. But it's the same kind of thing, really, I guess. You know. Um. Uh, there is no way to cover 50, 54 years no. in this business. But I want to thank you so much for being here tonight and for continuing to deliver such amazing performances. Uh, can't wait for the new season of Mozart in the Jungle. Guess I'll have to wait for the thank year. You. Thank you guys for being a great audience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.